You can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else, and that doesn't just apply to your money. That applies to any limited resource that you have to manage, like your time, your focus, your energy, your attention. And that opens up two questions. First, what matters most? What's most important? Second, how do you align your decision-making to reflect that? Answering these two questions is a lifetime practice, and that's what this podcast is here to explore. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast. Every other episode, we answer questions that come from you, the community. And today, former financial planner Joe Saul Sihai is with me to answer these questions. What's up, Joe? Oh, he's he's with you? I love that guy. I he's know. He's so awesome. Isn't he the best? Oh, that's me. What a coincidence. Wait a minute. I'm great. How are you? I'm excellent. It's been a heck of a morning already. It's not even 11 a.m. and I've already gotten attacked by one of my pets. I have completely rewired my whole home. Oh, I just flew back from Indianapolis. I was and under boy, contract on a tired. duplex. I know, right? But I'm bummed. So yeah, I went under contract on a duplex that I thought I was going to buy. Went through the property with multiple contractors and inspectors and took took a look at the whole thing, decided I was going to go through with it, got a text from a contractor with some extra information, ended up having to pull the contract at the last minute. So I've had a heck of a 48 hours. So besides that, you've done nothing. I know, right? <laughs> Just sitting around. Just watching some Simpsons. <laughs> well, the good news is you get to hang out with five fun people today. You and I have already listened to their questions. We've got some fun. We got some nerdy stuff today, Paula. Some super nerd. Let's get started. Absolutely. <laughs> so the first question is one, it's a theme that we hear a lot, and, and it goes to the theme of evaluating your priorities. What's more important, A or B? You know, it goes to that theme of trade-offs. And so that first question comes from George. Hi, Paula. This is George calling in from Southeast Michigan. I'm 24 and weighing the opportunity cost of paying down student debt versus investing in a house hack. I make $76,000 per year, and I have $130,000 in federal student loans, $26,000 in my name, and $104,000 in my parents. I have a three-month emergency fund, no revolving debt, and invest in my workplace 401k. With the CARES Act student loan payment deferral and 0% interest, I have deferred making student loan payments from March through December, instead depositing this money into a not-so-high interest savings account. I'm considering between two options. Option A, use the $20,000 I will have saved towards entirely paying off my highest interest rate student loan, 7.2% interest with eight years remaining. Option B, use the $20,000 as a down payment on a $300,000 duplex house hack, leveraging a 3% interest rate FHA loan. Option A would free up $200 in monthly cash flow, speeding up my debt avalanche and saving me from the loan interest. Option B should decrease my monthly rent by around $200. I would also start building equity sooner. Both options keep my emergency fund intact and my employment is stable. Fundamentally, if I expect to see greater than 7.2% return on this $20,000 over the next eight years, is it better to invest than to pay down debt? My long-term goal is reaching FI by age 60 with a diversified income stream for my 401k and multiple rental properties. I'm eager to get started on this path, but I'm cautious about investing while still carrying responsibility for six figures of debt. Thanks for expanding my knowledge of personal finance these past two years and introducing me to financial independence. I also really appreciated your timely pivot to address COVID-19 related topics. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. George, thank you for being part of the community. Thank you for the question. And right off the bat, congratulations. You're 24 and you earn $76,000 per year. So whatever it is that you do 
for work, that's very impressive. I didn't know anybody who was making that kind of money at the age of 24. I knew very few people who were making that kind of money even at the age of 30. So the fact that you have such a high income right out the gate says to me very good things about your future career trajectory. The fact that you're making that kind of money in Southeast Michigan, that in terms of cost of living adjustment, we're not talking about a New York salary. We're not talking about a San Francisco salary. So the income that you're making says to me great things about what you will be making in the future and the career prospects that you have moving forward. So in terms of your question, let's talk through these two options. First of all, the amount of a student loan debt that you have is higher than an amount that reasonably might be forgiven. There's talk about potential student loan forgiveness that might be or might not be coming down the pipeline, depending on what the people in Washington, D.C. decide to do. But even if that does happen, which it may or may not, the maximum amount that's being floated is significantly less than the amount that you hold. And so to that end, I think we can, in your particular case, it's worth having this conversation about paying off $20,000 of your $130,000 in student debt, given that even if there is some forgiveness, that forgiveness is not going to be the full $130,000. And, and I say that for the sake of everybody else who's listening, because there might be other people who are listening to this who only have $20,000 worth of student debt and who are asking the same question in their own lives. They are also asking, should I pay off my student loans or should I put this money towards buying a house hack? So I want to throw that message out there that this conversation that we're having with you is specific to the fact that your loan balance is based around the fact that your loan balance is higher than any amount that might reasonably be forgiven. Given that, and given the fact that the interest rate on the $20,000 portion of your student loan is high enough that if you were to put that money in an index fund, hypothetically, there wouldn't be a great enough gap between the interest rate you're paying on that loan and the potential returns that you could make over the span of the long term. There isn't a great enough gap that you could reasonably arbitrage that. Given those two facts, there is a very strong case to be made for paying off your highest interest rate student loan. Now, if you were to do that, you would, of course, then have to continue to rent for a longer period of time. But that rent that you would be paying, as you mentioned in your answer, would cost you an additional $200 per month. And if you were to be able to save another $20,000 in, let's say for the sake of example, 12 months, then we're talking about a delay in terms of buying this rental property of a year, meaning the cost of that delay in terms of the additional rent that you're paying at $200 a month, the cost of that delay is $2,400. So if you are essentially paying $2,400 in additional rent to delay buying a rental property by another year so that you can have that savings in your student loan, um, I, I think there's a powerful case to be made for that. Now, granted, there's a bunch of unknown factors that we can never predict. We don't know how quickly the properties are going to be appreciating in your area. Will that same $300,000 duplex cost $320,000 a year from now? We don't know that. And that is 
forecasting. And so to that extent, it is unknowable. But given the high interest rate on that $20,000 portion of your student loan, I think there's a powerful argument to be made there. That said, you know, just to play devil's advocate, you could also argue that you could use this money as a down payment on a duplex, lock in the cost of that duplex right now, get yourself in there, get some tenants in there, and then work on paying off a portion of your student loans. Certainly to play devil's advocate, I can see where you would make that argument, but the caution that I would issue is that when you purchase a property, you have more than just the down payment to worry about. You're going to need cash reserves for that property, you know, for any unexpected repairs, maintenance, vacancies. You're going to need upfront money associated with moving into that property. You, you know, there, there's all kinds of expenses that come with the purchase of a new property, even when you're trying to do it as cheaply as possible. Like I'm not talking about getting fancy and buying window treatments, you know, like I'm not talking about anything crazy like that. But at a certain point, you know, you're, you're going to need a lawnmower. And those types of expenses, they sound small, but they add up, even when you're trying to do it as frugally as possible. So the purchasing a duplex will cost more than just the down payment. And that's where my thoughts on this, Paula, spring from, is that I think my role here isn't to decide which one for George. It's to explain what the downsides are. And I think you already explained the downside of of one of those, which is paying off the debt first. I think the downside of the other one of more leverage, I think we should also explore because the thing that I love about real estate is that you can buy real estate using leverage. And so in up markets, real estate investments create more winners. But in down markets, the over leverage Paula get flushed out faster, right? Mm -hmm. So down markets seem more bitter. I'm looking at you 2008 and up markets are full of tons of people saying, and Paul, <laughs> you're going to roll your eyes because you see this all the time. All of these sharks telling you that real estate is exactly where it's at and they've got something to sell you that is this just, ah, oh, the number the number of just scammy real estate people out there. I can't stand them. Oh my, it, oh. it drives me nuts. It's, I call them the scamber gurus. <laughs> Cause they're, they're driving their scamborghinis, posting those pictures. Oh, I can't stand it. And they're, they're selling these like $20,000 weekend workshops where they teach you how to borrow as much money as possible and, you know, other people's money. Yes. Oh, OPM. Vomit in my mouth. The miracle of OPM. So leverage can be a negative thing and leverage under the wrong conditions could sink everything for you. So I look at it that way. I think so in my mind, the more secure thing to do is to say, yep, I can make more money on if if I invest this in real estate, but I'm going to make sure my foundation is solid and I'm going to just wipe out that debt. I've I see all kinds of broke professors that argue against paying off debt, but man, when I was working with really wealthy people, they paid down debt. By and large, most of them paid off debt. And mathematically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He's early on in this journey, which, which by the way, on the other side, because now I'm going to talk through the other side of my mouth, mm -hmm. <laughs> because on the other side, the thing I like better about getting involved with real estate is not the ROI uh, that you can calculate. 
it's the non-calculatable ROI, which is the quicker you get in there and mess stuff up, because you're going to mess up everything, no matter how many great people like Paula you have in your corner, you're going to mess stuff up. My son is 25 years old, owns three rental houses, is in the process of buying his fourth right now. He feels extremely different about contractors, about wholesalers, about where to get your money from, completely different than he did when it was in his head and he was listening to great stuff. He got all these ideas about how it worked. And then he went and he implemented and he found out, Paul, it was slightly harder than he thought it was. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was a little different than he thought it was. And he loves it. But he's made a lot of mistakes. And this fourth property he's buying at 25, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I haven't, dad and mom haven't, I haven't helped him with anything. He did it all by himself. But the education he's had that way, and he has that at 25, that for me is the bigger ROI of getting started. Mm -hmm. Because by the time he's 30, he's going to be a ninja, Paula. Right. He's going to know so much by the time he's 30. It's it, it, It'll be amazing. Yeah, I tell my students that all the time. It's like, any time that you're trying anything for the first time, whether it's playing tennis or driving a car, anything that you are doing for the first time, you're a beginner and you're going to go through that beginner learning curve. And the same is true with investing in real estate. You're not going to be great at it or fluent or fluid or graceful the first time that you do it. You're going to go through that landlord learning curve. And so, yeah, I totally agree with you. The younger... The younger you are when you go through that, the more years you have in the future to handle it with the skill set of somebody who has experience. Yeah. So I like that. I would just go in with my eyes open, knowing that if he decides, if you decide, George, to take on more leverage, there can be unforeseen things that come out of the blue that you can't predict that can really, really make things difficult for you. You mentioned, you know, a lot of broke professors will argue that that paying off debt doesn't mathematically make sense. In George's case, with a 7.2% interest rate on- It totally 20, makes sense to it pay It does off make debt. sense, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think even academically, on paper, there's, there's just not enough room to arbitrage there. So yeah. on paper, it makes sense to pay off a 7.2% interest rate debt. It would be different if that debt had like a 3% interest rate. Right. That's the rate of inflation. But 7.2, that's that's high enough that even on paper, it makes sense. Locked in 7% return. Exactly. Exactly. And on top of that, you know, I, I would save up more money before buying a duplex. I, I would save up more than just just the down payment. Like I, I would certainly save at least enough to have strong cash reserves, you know, at the time that you enter into the deal. The other thing I like about paying off the debt is he has $200 more cash flow. And as you said, you're going to need a lawnmower mm -hmm. or you're, you're going to need to pay a 14-year-old. You're, you're going to have to do something. And there are so many. Every house I purchase, Paula, the people at Home Depot by week two know me by name. Yep. Like, Joe, you're back. They don't call me Joe, though. They call me profit margin. I don't know <laughs> what that's all about. Yeah. Yeah, there there definitely been many, many months where I'm like, why do I even bother having a paycheck? Why don't I just send it directly to Home Depot? <laughs> like <laughs> just put this toward my next visit. I'll I'll be there shortly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So but tons of stuff, as you know, comes comes out of nowhere. I love that. Bigger cash reserve, more cash flow. 
it's a good interest rate. That said, I would get started, George, on that journey as fast as possible. Yeah. So I guess I guess we did really pick a side and answer his question without answering it. We explored the pros and cons, but I think it's fairly clear where both you and I come down on. All right. So thank you, George, for asking that question. Our next question comes from Hanan. Hi, Paula. I hope you're doing well. First, I want to thank you for everything that you have created through Afford Anything. So your podcast, online community, and your real estate class have all been really, really beneficial to me over the past six months as I've continued to learn about personal finance as well as think about how I can get to financial independence. Today, I have two questions regarding retirement funds. The first is around selections I currently have in my 401k. My 401k is through my employer and Merrill Lynch is the platform. And so I currently have 80.5% of my assets in a Vanguard Institutional 500 Index Trust. The symbol is VLCSP. And I have the remaining amount in a Vanguard Institutional Total Bond Market Index Trust. The symbol for that is VTBMK. The risk listed for both of these options is that the investment options are not mutual funds and that they are not publicly traded or listed on exchanges. And my question is, how much do these funds differ from a, for example, Vanguard S&P index fund itself? So essentially, what is the difference between a trust and let's say an index fund or a mutual fund? What are the real implications of that? And are the trusts less than ideal or basically the same thing? My second question is about a Roth IRA. So I'm currently 28 years old. I make about $100,000 and I therefore am able to open a Roth IRA um, in the more straightforward way. And I recently did just this. My question is really in anticipation of hopefully making above the income limit in the next year or two. Um, which I believe I'm on track to do. And so I wanted to know if the backdoor Roth IRA conversion will look any different for someone like me who already has a Roth IRA open. Um, Are there anything I should be planning for or considering ahead of time? Or will this conversion process look similar to the way that it would if I didn't have an account already open. Thank you. I look forward to hearing your answers. Thanks for that question, Hanan. And I'm going to tackle the first part of that question because back when I was a financial planner, I would also go in and speak at different companies about how their 401ks worked. And often inside of a 401k, they'll have something that looks like a mutual fund, smells like a mutual fund, but it's a little different like you're talking about. It's a trust. And actually, it follows, this fund follows the mutual fund close enough that they use the same ticker symbol. The only difference that I know of is that because it's a trust and not the same mutual fund that you would buy from Vanguard off the street is the fact that your firm can then either be charged a different fee 
or the people running the 401k can charge you a different fee, depending on how they they decide to work that. So I'll tell you, if you work at a big company, you're probably getting it maybe even a little cheaper than you would if you bought it on your own. If you work for a small company, you're probably paying for it through the nose versus if you bought it, if you bought it on your own. Does that really matter in the big scheme of things? No. I heard people before say, you know what? My 401k has a lot of fees in it. I'm not going to use my 401k. Are you kidding me? It's the best place to save only because behaviorally, the money is taken away from you before you even see it. How great is that? And certainly the key to getting wealthy is getting money saved. And certainly if you have a 401k available, especially on the pre-tax side, you can't use a deductible IRA as an example, uh, depending on how much money you make. If you make under a certain income, you may be able to also deduct an IRA. But for a lot of people, you can't. So for those people especially, you want to use the 401k if you're using the pre-tax option. So in the fine print with the risks, the risk that this isn't a mutual fund, maybe. I, I can't think of a time, Paula, where that was really a risk. They're using this trust thing, though, to charge fees a little differently. Hmm. So the takeaway that I'm hearing is that the fees within a trust are going to be different. But if this is the option that you have in your 401k, take it because it's better than not. Yeah. And there's really nothing for you to worry about that's different than a mutual fund. Hmm. Excellent. To the second part of your question, so first of all, congratulations on being 20, still being in your 20s, being 28 and earning six figures. That is enormous. And and like I said to George in our earlier question, when you are making a high income in your 20s, that bodes very well for your future earning prospects throughout the rest of your life, throughout your 30s, 40s, 50s, setting yourself up with a high income at an early age indicates big things for you down the road. So big congratulations on having that great income at an early age. Big congratulations on being attentive enough to personal finance that you are listening to a personal finance podcast so that you know how to manage this money. Now there are, you know, earning is half of the journey and managing it and saving it is the other half. And and I'm sure you've probably seen colleagues, coworkers, friends, maybe even family members who are making good money, but they haven't given any thought to managing it. So the fact that you're doing both is incredible. To your question about a Roth IRA, good news. Don't worry. That is an extremely normal situation. It is very, very commonplace for people to have Roth IRAs and eventually for their earnings to grow to the point where they are phased out of eligibility to contribute to a Roth IRA in the traditional way. And when that happens, people who have existing Roth IRAs then later in life have to start making backdoor Roth contributions. Same thing happened to me. I had a Roth IRA that I made contributions to in the normal front doorway for many years. And then eventually my income grew to the point where I had to start making backdoor Roth IRA conversions. So without having statistics on the number of people who do that, I would guess that that is the majority of cases. I would guess that the majority of cases, people start with front door contributions and then later transition to backdoor. The only thing that you need to know is, um, and I'll just outline the process. 
When you start making backdoor Roth contributions, here's how it's going to happen. First, you're going to open a traditional IRA. Then you're going to make a contribution into that traditional IRA account. Now, technically, this contribution is not going to be eligible for a tax deduction. So the phrasing around it is that you're making a non-deductible traditional IRA contribution. But what that means at a logistical or administrative level is simply that you make a contribution into a traditional IRA account. The fact that it is non-deductible is something that gets dealt with on the tax filing side. It's not It's not a different account. It's not a specific type of account. So you make a contribution, a non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA account, and then either online or on the phone, you convert that money, you, you essentially transfer that money from the traditional IRA account into the Roth IRA account. And that's that. It's that simple. So it's literally just a matter of putting money in an account and then transferring that money. So the good news is the fact that you have an existing Roth IRA is not going to affect your eligibility to make backdoor contributions. The one thing that you do want to be aware of is something called the pro rata rule. And in the show notes, which will be available at affordanything.com slash episode 298, I'm going to link to a couple of articles that explain the pro rata rule. But to keep it simple, there are some guidelines around the total amount of assets that you can have in all IRA accounts, such as a simple IRA or a SEP IRA. There are rules that would affect you if you have a high volume of assets in those types of accounts. I don't think that's going to affect you because from what you've said, it doesn't sound as though you have any of those accounts. It doesn't sound as though you have a simple IRA, a SEP IRA, or even a traditional IRA. So you probably don't have to worry about it, but I'm saying that for the sake of anybody else who's listening who does have a simple IRA or a SEP IRA, you're going to want to read up about the pro rata rule. So again, we'll link to those articles in the show notes. Those are available at affordanything.com slash episode 298. Long story short, the key takeaway is that having a Roth IRA account that you have made front door contributions to is totally normal and will not affect your conversion process. So thank you for asking that question, Hanan, and congratulations on everything that you're doing. We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Real quick, name some super easy choices that you make. For example, when you book a flight, easy choice, avoid the middle seat, get the window or the aisle, right? Maybe at work or at home, there are certain things that you just always outsource. 
like tech support or a weekly house cleaning. Easy choices. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the time that you launched to the time that you hit your first million in sales. And so whatever you're selling, whether it's tools for real estate investors or accounting workbooks or scented soap or outdoor outfits, whatever it is, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have both an in-person point of sale system as well as an all-in-one e-commerce platform. And it's the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. They also have Shopify Magic, which is an AI-powered all-star. And you can grow your average order value with the Shopify Bundles app, where you can create and sell product bundles with ease. What I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, whether you just started your business today or whether you've been in business for 10 years, Shopify gives you everything you need to control and take your business to the next level. They power 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And they are the force behind millions of entrepreneurs of every size, big and small, across 175 countries. And they've got award-winning help to support you every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Paula now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Paula. When it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I didn't know how to optimize what was in my wallet. So I didn't know how to optimize how to use travel rewards to pay for vacations. But now I've got a new card with more miles and I'm getting business class upgrades. I'm getting lounge access. I'm getting all kinds of perks that I didn't even know that I was missing out on. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access, wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Our next question comes from June. Hi, Paula. This is June calling from Metro Detroit. My husband and I were able to sell out of some golden parachute ISOs, and we've netted about $400,000. We sold the stock so that we could diversify out of that asset. And also for college funding purposes, we're a little late to the college funding game because I thought it was the senior year that mattered for FAFSA and expected family contribution purposes. But it's actually the end of your oldest child's sophomore and beginning of junior year, which for us, because our kids are 10, 12, and 14, is the 2022 tax year. So for FAFSA student aid purposes, our expected family contribution is 20% of our annual income and 5.64% of our assets for 10 years, which ends up being about 40% of our net worth that's not protected. So the protected things that are not affected by your expected family contribution are our home equity, the value of our retirement accounts, the value of any small business, money in 529s, personal assets like clothing and cars, and life insurance cash value. 
plus a small asset protection allowance of $9,200 a year. Our home has $200,000 mortgage, which we haven't paid off because it's a 30-year at 3.5%. Our retirement is maxed out every year, and my husband has just started making catch-up contributions because he turns 50 this year. But almost all of that is in pre-tax income, and we have hundreds of thousands of dollars in it. My husband's small business is just getting started, and my law firm is too, so they may eventually have value but do not at the moment. We hope to keep $100,000 in cash for our emergency fund, and $300,000 is remaining in the stock, plus we have another set of ISOs that do not have much value now, maybe $50,000. And we obviously don't have control over the value of those stocks, which so far the one has gone up really high, about 20 to 30% a year. We definitely plan to buy our first rental property or two with this some of this money. And we will definitely start a donor-advised fund with some of it as well. But we're trying to figure out what to do with the rest of the money while still preserving that $100,000 cash, which we already have outside of the $400,000. That $100,000 is not coming from this money. We're trying to decide if we should do a 529. We have a $10,000 tax deduction starting next year in here in the state of Michigan. None of our income is here yet, so we can't do it this year. But we only have one year to do that, at least with this money. So we don't know if we want to do more than that $10,000. We could also pay off our home, which is at a low interest rate. But then again, so will our rental properties be. That's $200,000. We could also roth some of our 401ks, just so we have cash in five years. That is retirement money. But because of the unknown value, which could be a huge amount of value for our ISOs, we will get hit with that 5.64 asset percentage on those funds. And we may not have the cash to pay that out of pocket for college because neither of those ISOs is is liquid. We shouldn't need to use those Roth IRAs if we choose this option, but we'd like to have the ability to do so. And we can use some of that $400,000 to pay the taxes if we want to do this next year. Or should we buy more rental properties? My understanding is that rental properties show a tax loss for the first few years because of depreciation. And we could really use to get our income down, and that would also affect our assets, which would really help. We don't mind having student loans because we can always help our kids pay those off later, but we can't fix our retirement later. So if you have advice, we'd really appreciate hearing it. We have $400,000, and we need to know if we should buy more rentals, put more money in 529s, pay off our home, or roth some of our 401ks, and use this money to pay the taxes. Love your podcast and look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thanks. June. First of all, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for being part of the community. And kudos to you for all of the research that you've done. The fact that you are so well-versed in all of this, you know exactly what's happening with regards to the FAFSA, with regards to its requirements. You have clearly done a ton of research and a ton of thinking around the strategy, the game plan, the end goals. You know your numbers. You are in an excellent position to lay down the foundation of a very strong financial planning conversation. So big congratulations to you for everything that you've done to have an amazing grasp of your personal situation as well as the rules of the game around you. Because learning the, the rules of that game is one of, that's one of the major steps that Joe and I, that you and I both frequently work on when we're talking to beginners. And June, you've clearly already nailed that. So congrats to you on that. Now, Joe, you sent twins to college. Um, talk a little bit about your uh, experience and, and how that can inform June's thinking. 
I think I sent my hair to college too. Cause if you look at pictures of me before and after college, that's <laughs> a, lot, a lot less hair after that. But seriously, this was my favorite part of financial planning. It is fair. It is fairly complicated for everybody that found June's question to even be complicated because it is, there's a bunch of stuff going on in this FAFSA form, the federal application for student aid and the expected family contribution, two things everybody sending to college should know about as well as June does. Let's start off with a few things. And what's interesting, Paula, we've got uh, Ron Lieber, who writes the Your Money column for the New York Times, actually over on Stacking Benjamins today, talking about exactly this topic. So June, if you want to hear some of the things in more detail that I'm about to say, Ron's got it all over there for you. The first thing is this, when we look at, at expected family contribution, it isn't just your assets, but it's also your income. And I'm wondering, just based on the questions that you have, is your income low enough that any of this work even matters? I would have many clients that are in your position that would come to me and say, okay, how do I rearrange all these assets? I'd look at their income and I go, guess what? Your expected family contribution is still going to be through the moon. We don't have to worry about how we rearrange these assets that, that you have. Second, if you have $300,000 of the $400,000 sitting there that is for college, I'm wondering how close you're going to be, like which school you want your children to go to. What exactly is the target? By the way, I also have some good news there that Ron shared with me when I interviewed him, which is that the cost of private schools, where you've seen the sticker on private schools, Paula, mm -hmm. it, it looks so much more expensive than a state school. And Ron says that's not the case because at nearly all of the private schools out there, you get so much more aid that narrows the gap mm -hmm. that you end up with something that looks not that much different than a state school. And by right. the way, one thing that he really likes about private schools over the big schools like Michigan State, where I went, is that in a smaller school, you'll have professors teaching you instead of, I remember one of my communications classes, there were maybe 125 people in the, in the room and there was a TA teaching the class and the professor was nowhere to be seen. So the value, he talks a lot, Ron talks a lot about the difference between value and price and the value to go to a small school may be, may be fantastic. There were a couple of other interesting things that maybe, Paul, you and I can talk about later that I found interesting. But I think, I think you're going to do the expected family contribution work and you're going to go do, do all the FAFSA work and then you're going to look at all of the ways that you can hide money. And I'll give you one example that you mentioned, pay off your house. If you take all this money and you pay off your house to hide it so that your expected family contribution looks better, your FAFSA looks better, and then for some reason you end up needing that money, you're going to then have to take out a loan to get your own money back. Or you'll have to sell the property to get your own money back. So I'm really not a fan of taking this liquid asset that I know you're going to need over a short time for starting fairly soon and put it into illiquid places so that we might or might probably won't end up having it affect the college game all that much. The second thing you said, 529 plans with, with a year and a half to go mm -hmm. until you get to college, 
I, I don't think there's much efficacy in doing the 529. You're in Michigan, and I know that you get a small tax break for putting money in there. So, okay, maybe, maybe. Uh, Paula? I'll challenge you on that one. So she said her kids are 10, 12, and 14. For the 14-year-old, okay. I don't think there's really any value in, in right. contributing to a 529 plan. For the 10-year-old, I could see that. Yeah, quite possibly for the 10-year-old. She also mentioned that there's a $10,000 tax deduction starting this year in the state of Michigan. and Well, that's one that I'm talking about. But the problem is, is that the tax rate, the Michigan tax rate, isn't all that big. Mm-hmm. So sure, it's going to end up giving you something, but it's not, it isn't a ton. And then you look at what she's going to invest it in inside the 529 plan versus outside the 529 plan. Okay, for the 10-year-old, go ahead and do it. You'll get a little bit. For the for the oldest one, maybe we do it. I don't know. It seems like we're doing a lot of work for not a very big payoff. Right. That's what it feels like to me. It just seems like you're going to do a lot of work and get no mileage out of any of this. College is expensive. It sucks. You put on your hard hat and you go at it. And that's not what people want to hear. But the, it's college is something to live through, Paula. Mm-hmm. That was my thought as well. She mentioned that she's starting a law firm and her husband is starting a small business. And my first thought was, that's a ton of work. Yet starting two people, both starting small businesses, you know, a law firm is also a small business. So you've got two people, they're both starting small businesses. That that initial startup is so much work. Going from zero miles per hour to 60 miles per hour requires so much more energy than going from 60 miles per hour up to 120 miles per hour. And so the initial burst of work that's needed to begin something new is so all-consuming. You know, if if she and her husband are trying to do that and raise three kids, I want to make sure they're getting a good return on their time. And so, you know, I'm in agreement with you, Joe, that I worry that some of these moves may save a little bit of money, but the opportunity cost when it comes to serving as a distraction and, you know, consuming energy that could otherwise be spent establishing this law firm or establishing this small business, that seems like a, a better direction in terms of, of use of time, attention, energy. A 529 plan is easy enough to set up that I could justify that time. Yeah, like, right. Exactly. Put the money in there. That's very quick. And also, there's one thing that I don't know mm-hmm. with June and her husband both being in the beginning stages. I mentioned their income levels might make all of this not really matter. But if they're in the early years, they might not be paying themselves much, Paula. And if they're not, that may change the entire game, especially if this is the only $400,000 they have that really counts when it comes to the FAFSA form. Right. At that point, then what I do is I I seriously then talk to a certified financial planner who focuses on college planning. They will run, this is what I used to do, they'll run your expected family contribution. I used to have the software. And then we take a look at what we did with that money. And if we moved it here versus we moved it there, what impact would that have? Depending on where they're at with their personal salaries, then I might make that move. Right. Although it also depends on how the businesses are structured. If their personal salaries are low, but they're retaining earnings within the business 
and the business is formed as an LLC, so they've retained earnings within it so that they can spend that money or have better cash reserves. You know, that that's taxable income. It's passed through income. So it may be the case that they're paying themselves a low salary, but they have profits in the business that they're holding year over year. And those yeah. profits then show up on their tax form because it's passed through income. Yeah. But consequently, also on the other side, if they have a bunch of startup costs mm-hmm. and they're they're they have massive losses. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know the answer to any of those questions. And I think those are pretty material. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, to the 529 plan, especially for the 10 year old, I think it's a worthwhile idea. I mean, 529 plans, the tax deduction on the growth the the you know tax deductible growth is the benefit of a 529 plan and when you have older children when you've got a 14 year old and it's time to start paying for college pretty soon there aren't going to be very many years of growth there and so the best time to open a 529 plan is when kids are young um for the 10 year old i think there's still probably enough time but there's not a huge deduction that you're going to get because there's not going to be a ton of growth that you're going to get because if you're investing money that has an eight-year timeline to withdrawal, assuming that the 10-year-old goes to college at the age of 18, given that, that the timeline to withdrawal is so near, that money is going to be invested conservatively, meaning that the gains aren't going to be all that great, meaning any tax deduction on that growth is not going to be very significant. The idea that I actually did like more than any of the others is paying off their home for precisely the reason of time, energy, attention. I mean, of everything that she's discussed, you know, paying off your home is simple. It's not like buying rental properties, uh, which is absolutely not something that I would do for the purpose of showing a tax loss. You buy a rental property if you want to own rental properties, but the effort that it takes to buy a good rental property I mean, while you're also starting two businesses, forget um, it. Yeah, focus on your businesses. Do one or the other. You know, the entire time that I was building my rental property investing course, I was not actively buying rental properties because I knew that I could do one or the other. I could throw all of my attention into actively shopping for rental properties, or I could throw all of my attention into building out this course, but I couldn't do both simultaneously. Putting that cash into the house, though, Paula, goes directly against the liquidity she's going to need. I mean, how is she going to get – without a plan to get that money back out, unless that saves her enough money that she can then cash flow college, right? So if let's say she's got this mortgage that is $3,500 a month, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden she's got $3,500 a month of free cash flow that she didn't have before – then I go, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're close enough. The interesting thing about college also, by the way, and I think I may have spoken to this before, is I was surprised by the amount with my kids of cost transfer that there was. I had thought that when we looked at the retail cost of college, that that was what I had to save. Well, my son was eating at my house and he's also eating at school. And so I'm paying for the same eating. So I, th- I thought I had to save money toward his eating. Well, that would have been great because then my budget would have been less and I would have had the money saved. But instead, the budget neutral position is that food on campus is the same cost as food at home. Mm, right. So it wasn't that your grocery bill stayed the same once your son moved out. Right. Exactly. My, my grocery bill went down. A ton, thank goodness. 
<laughs> fantastic. And I actually think I, I, and I've said this before, I'm, I'm pretty sure I won that battle. Like, like I looked at the price that they was going to cost the school to feed him and I high five myself. I was going to win that deal. <laughs> now, in her case, she said she has a 30 year home mortgage of $200,000 at a 3.5% interest rate. No, so, no, it's not going to be this big number that offsets the cash flow that she would need for college. Now, she does have time on her side, mm-hmm. but I don't think that that's enough time with a 14 year old for her to for her to magically come up with the money that she's going to need for a college education, which again comes back to the amount of money that she's, uh, what's the target school? You know, what, what is the target school? Ron and I talked about community college for some kids. If it's, if it's a community college, maybe, yeah, maybe you could do that. Well, she has also indicated that she's open to taking out student loans. So she could pay off her home, take out student loans to help pay for her kids college. And you know, handle it like that. I'm just not that excited about taking out new debt that's probably at a uh, higher rate, retiring debt that's at a lower rate to take out new debt in a couple of years that's at a, that's at a higher rate. I mean, I haven't, I haven't done any of that math yet, but just from a, just a gut feeling, I'm thinking that's not a great idea. The other question that we, we haven't addressed head on is what portion of her children's college education will she and her husband cover and what portion will the kids be responsible for? Yeah. Are they making the decision to pay for a hundred percent of their kids' expenses? Are they going to pay only for the kids' tuition, but the, it'll be the kids' responsibility to pay for their own room and board and miscellaneous and incidentals and transportation and, and all of those miscellaneous life expenses? You know, will they pay for the first year and then the kids will have to pay for years two through four. I mean, there, there are all kinds of setups that different families have. And that's also going to be part of this conversation. And that will inform the question of what do they do with their money? Because, you know, do they pay off their home? Do they buy more rental properties? I mean, that will inform that question because fundamentally it informs the question of how much do they need versus how much will their kids need? Those are two separate questions. You know, my parents took the position that they would help me with my a portion of my tuition, but that I would be responsible for coming up with scholarships that would pay for another portion of my tuition. And starting from my sophomore year, I would have to cover all of my my room, my board. You know, I had to pay rent, utilities, transportation, groceries, all of that, uh, starting sophomore year. So you did a job. It was... Stressful. You know, it it was definitely stressful, but a big part of how I became so naturally frugal was I was working 20 hours a week all throughout my college experience, you know, working 20 hours a week in addition to being a full-time honor student and working full-time in the summer in order to be able to cover my expenses. And honestly, that was a big piece of my early financial education, like having to budget, having to live on $1,000 a month and stretch that to cover rent and utilities, you know, have being in that position where the $10 that you've got to spend at the laundromat every month is, is notable. That's something that you notice that does teach you at an early age, how to manage your money. Like you manage your money tightly because you have to. Yeah. There's a lot there. I still wouldn't buy rental properties, June. Yeah. I still wouldn't do that. That's the thing I wouldn't do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I agree. Don't buy it for tax purposes. That's letting the tail wag the dog. Yeah. 
everything else is on the table depending on what the goal is. So thank you, June, for asking that question. We'll come back to this episode in just a minute. But first, are you saving for a down payment, a wedding, a dream vacation? Monarch makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, cash flow, net worth, and more. Plus, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now listeners for this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. I've used a lot of personal finance apps, and what I can say about Monarch is that it's simple and intuitive. It's got great design, so it's really easy to set up. It's easy to customize. I have mine set up so that, like, I've customized my notifications because I don't want to get pinged about every little thing. I only want to see the big ticket highlights. So I have created custom notifications based on what I prefer, but you can change it up however you like it, right? You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can toggle between light and dark mode. You can create custom budgets, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and you can collaborate with your partner, your family, or your financial advisor. You can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all your finances. Yes, your financial advisor. You can loop them in. Monarch will never sell your data to third parties, and it won't show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula, P-A-U-L-A. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Well, get Constant Contact. They make it easy to promote your business through email marketing, SMS marketing, social media posting, even events management. They've helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results. With Constant Contact, you can grow your customer list and you can communicate more effectively with your customers or your clients. And if you don't know much about marketing, don't worry. Constant Contact has writing assistance tools and automation features that can help you say the right thing at the right time. And their emails have a 97% deliverability rate. That's huge. One of the things that I really like about Constant Contact is that anyone can use it, right? If you are an entrepreneur, if you have a small business, if you have a side hustle, you need to communicate with your customers, your clients, your, you know, whoever it is that you serve, that the community that you serve. Learning the ropes of email marketing, SMS marketing, like it can feel a little overwhelming, but Constant Contact has this expert live customer support, so you get help when you need it. And they've got a 30-day money-back guarantee. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Our next question comes from Mario. Hello, uh, this is Mario from Kansas. I invested my Roth IRA in uh, two funds portfolio, uh, VTWAX. It's a Vanguard total 
World Stocks and VBTLX. Uh, it's a 90, 10, 90 stocks and 10 bonds, 10% bonds. I'm 41 years old. Can I have your opinion in your future podcast? Thank you so much. I enjoy your work. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Bye. Mario, thank you so much for that question. So I've got a couple of thoughts. First of all, your Roth IRA, you said there's a 90-10 split. 90% of it is going towards equities and 10% is going towards bonds. Now, I'll talk about a broad, generalized idea that's out there in the financial media, but I'll also then talk about how that doesn't apply to every particular person. So there's this very, very general idea in terms of asset allocation, that uh, asset allocation should be roughly your age in bonds with the remainder in stocks or equities. And so your 41 will round that to 40. Under that set of guidelines, you would have 40% of your portfolio in bonds and 60% in equities. But there are people who would argue that that's far too conservative. And so there are people who would move that benchmark to be a, a bit more aggressive, they might, they might say at the age of 40, why not go 30% bonds, 70% equities, right? So there's some wiggle room in terms of how that generalized rule plays out, but that's sort of a starting benchmark for a conversation. That being said, where that falls short and why there's a disparity between these generalized aggregate rules versus you know, what's best for an individual situation is that you may have other sources of retirement income that would impact the amount of fixed income allocation that you need. So for example, if you have a job in which you have a, a pension plan and you know that you have the security of that pension that's coming in, that's going to impact your desire of how much you want for a fixed income portion of your portfolio. If you have a bunch of rental properties and you have uh, cash flow from rental income that's coming through. If you have software or books, you know, and you've got royalties from that intellectual property, you know, that's going to, Im all of that is going to impact the desire that you have for the fixed income portion of your portfolio. And so without knowing the rest of your financial picture, it's impossible to say what's right for you as an individual. But I will say that just using these broad, generalized initial conversation benchmarks, the stock bond allocation that you've outlined seems a little bit aggressive for your age. The other thing that comes to mind right away is that you mentioned you have total world stocks. It can be a good idea to have a portion of your equities portfolio in the stock of your home country. You know, so assuming that you live in the United States, having a portion of your equity portfolio in a Vanguard total U.S. stock market and then a different portion allocated to the international market, that is typically advisable because when you have money invested in the international market, then you're subject to all kinds of, of various risks, including currency conversion risk, among others. And that doesn't apply when everything is in the same currency that you, you're buying equities in the same currency that you're earning money in and you're investing money in. And so keeping some portion of your equity portfolio in your domestic equities can be a pretty sound idea. 
my gut feeling on the asset allocation is a 90-10 for a guy who's just over 40 years old is fantastic, is a great place to be. And you look at equities, by the time you get to 60, uh, when these funds become available without penalty or loopholes or anything else, you look at that time frame, you're going to have to do a lot of math for me to show me where any bond exposure makes sense. The bigger thing I worry about when it comes to stock versus bond exposure is not the financial markets. It actually is risk tolerance. Then your ability to withstand the roller coaster ride you're about to go on if you if you up the game. So what I'm saying is for that time frame, a hundred zero is fine with me. It isn't fine with me when it comes to working with people, though. The markets weren't the problem. The people were the problem. And having been an advisor during two pretty horrible downturns in 2000 and 2008, I'll tell you that it's way more brutal than you think it would be if you've never been through one. You know, you get to a point where you've saved a nice sum of money, people closing in on retirement. Maybe you've done a great job of saving and you're at a million dollars in the stock market drops 40%. It's very easy to drive down the road, Paula, and say, I'd be okay with losing 40%. You know what? I think I'd be fine. But then when I rephrase that, you just lost $400,000 and you don't know when it's going to come back, puts a pit in your stomach that you can't believe. People can't sleep. They have trouble eating. I had some clients that lost weight uh, and not in a good way that started noticing that they were having uh, some psychological issues because they told me point blank, we were going to be a okay. And I will tell you that there's a good chance that you won't be. So when I look at it from the market's perspective, though, Mario, 90-10 from where I sit, I think that's great. But buckle up. So you're saying there's a mathematical answer and a psychological answer. Absolutely. And, and, and they're nowhere near the same, Paula. Mm. Absolutely nowhere near the same. Fund-wise, I agree with Paula. I think the asset allocation should be focused on what your end goal is. How much money do you need and what level of risk do you need to take? And then that will lead you to a better asset allocation. So directionally, yeah, I like it. Could you do better? I bet you can. And what's neat is, this is the neat thing about good asset allocation. Let me tell you a couple of things, Paula, that, that I found absolutely fascinating. Let's say that Mario added 10% small cap, let's say small cap value index. And then he added another 10% to developing markets, right? Uh, places like Southeast Asia bought a developing markets index. Both of those, by the way, guys, super risky. When you look at the risk level of his portfolio, though, will his risk in his portfolio be higher or lower if he adds those two funds? Mm, trick question. Uh, the risk in his portfolio will be lower despite the fact that he's adding riskier assets because of low correlation. I think it's fantastic. It's so cool that you can add riskier stuff and lower the risk in your portfolio. Blew my mind when I first saw that. I think that's fascinating. And that's why I like starting with the end in mind. I begin with the goal and I work backward and then I can use things like those two asset classes that I talked about. And I know, by the way, that those two, if I look at them by themselves, those are going to be the, it's not even a roller coaster ride. It's worse than that. I mean, it is 
years of not making any money and then popping these huge returns and then losing a lot of money and then making a ton of money. It is, there are some huge gyrations, but Paula, to your point, because they don't do it at the same time, Mm. it evens out the portfolio, makes it smoother, a smoother ride. Mm. I like it. So Mario, the takeaway is a lot of this is going to depend on you, both your risk tolerance and your risk capacity. But I think Joe and I are both in agreement, have some domestic equities in there. Yeah, agreed. Our final question today comes from Vivian. Hi, Paula. My name is Vivian. I love your podcast, and I especially love the sessions where you and Joe answer listener questions. I have a pre-retirement planning question concerning uh, rolling over a Roth 401k. So 60% of my 401k is in Roth post-tax money. I have another IRA in a similar amount that's all pre-tax money. So my plan was that I was going to, when I retire in four years, I'm going to uh, do some Roth conversion ladders and try to get as much of my pre-tax money into post-tax money. I was not planning on taking uh, Social Security until I'm 70, so I had like five years to do that. My plan, though, was to use some of my Roth 401k money to live on and to help pay taxes during that five-year period. I do have a taxable brokerage account of about 100 grand, and I also have cash of about 100 grand. But it just worries me because I just recently found out that when I transfer my 401k Roth monies into a Roth IRA, the five-year rule uh, starts fresh and is not triggered until I actually open up that Roth IRA. So my, my question is, can I open up a Roth IRA today, even though I'm Um, over the maximum income. But I understand that that's okay, because if I take part of my IRA pre-tax money and convert it, and I would just use a small amount, like maybe $5,000 and $10,000, and convert it and pay the taxes on that. And then in four years, when I retire, if I can then roll over my 401k Roth portion into it, would all of those monies be available to me then in 2025 rather than having me start over? Or would I not have access to the monies that I put in in four years for another five years? So I hope that's clear. Love what you guys do. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Vivian. Also, thanks for the kind words. Vivian's my favorite caller because she said thank you to me. So (laughs) Vivian and I, now BFFs. Uh, And Vivian, I love this idea of starting the Roth IRA now. You definitely want to get the clock started. And I think, Paula, this is for everybody out there. There's this weird clock on the Roth that, hey, put a dollar in it today. Because if there's a dollar in it, that starts the clock on that existing Roth. And then you can work your magic after that. But wherever you're going to do it, start a Roth IRA today so that it gives you flexibility down the road. And then you're not dealing with what Vivian's dealing with, which is 
okay, I got four years and I really want this money to be available when I get there. I think there's a different way that she's not thinking about because I think doing the so yes, Vivian, to your question, you can do the uh, the conversion ladder. That's going to be time consuming. I think it'll be totally worth it. It's a great idea. But there's one option that I might like better, which is look at how much money you're going to need in those early years that's in the Roth portion of your 401k and just leave it there. You don't need to roll it all to an IRA. You can have your short-term money stay in the 401k, do a partial rollover of your long-term money to an IRA. And sure, you've got two different accounts, but you can handle having two different accounts. That changes if you're paying huge fees in your 401k. There's some 401k plans with big companies where you're paying just some massive fees. And for those, I'll keep my advice earlier that we gave saying still save into those if that's your only choice, because behaviorally, it's fantastic to save pre-tax at work. However, I think, Vivian, in your case, that um, if you've got the opportunity to get out of there and high fees, do that as soon as you're able. Also, there's a thing called an in-service withdrawal. And you have to go to your HR people and ask them if they have in-service withdrawals. By the way, they may not know. You may end up having to call together to your 401k provider and ask them if they can do in-service withdrawals. If they can, Paula, that might also work out really well because that means she can start moving some of that 401k money now, today, even though she's still working there. So most 401ks won't let you move the money until you separate from service. You have to be retired or be gone, quit, whatever it might be. But if they have this in-service withdrawal provision, you can then take some of your money out of your 401k, make sure you do the paperwork correctly so it goes right to an IRA so you don't pay the tax right now, and you can begin your laddering today as well instead of having to wait until you get to retirement to start that. So I would ask about an in-service withdrawal if you have high fees. If you have low fees, I might skip all the gyrations and just leave some of the Roth money there to get you through. Mm -hmm. If there is a broker or an advisor involved, and this is important to know, some advisors are paid based on assets that are at that advisory firm. And so an advisor might be talking to you about, hey, you know what? You got to roll this to an IRA. Often, Paula, that is the number one thing to do. Usually moving it over to an IRA has so many advantages that leaving it in the 401k doesn't that I think it's a very responsible thing to do. However, if the advisor is asset-based, they may forget about the fact that for Vivian, it might not be the best thing. Boom, drop the mic, Joe. <laughs> That's fun. That's always fun. Yeah, you just nailed Vivian's question. But that's because she thanked you. So, you know, she's that is she's your favorite caller. I could have answered all the other ones like that, but Vivian <laughs> gets the special treatment. Oh, <laughs> uh, Joe, so where can people find you, you and Ron Lieber, if yes, they are looking for more info? <laughs> You can find Rod Lieber and I and uh, our mutual friend, you're my mutual friend, OG, over at Stacking Benjamins every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Fridays, you'll find Paula there hanging out with us, talking about cake and making up uh, 
fun things for us to do on the Stacking Benjamin show. Paul, <laughs> Paul has taken over. Yeah. So I. Uh, so right now, as of this afternoon, the afternoon that we're recording this, the Afford Anything podcast has 14.8 million downloads. And I promised on Instagram that when we hit 15 million, I'm going to make a cake. So on the topic of cake, if you find me on Instagram at Paula Pant, there will very soon be a giant cake. I, and I, I bought the cutouts for it. I went on Amazon. I bought like cake molding to form a cake into the numbers 15. Nice. So I'm about to make myself a cake in the shape of the number 15. Red velvet. Oh, no, I was planning on chocolate. Chocolate. Mm, yeah. yeah, whatever. That's fine by me. Yeah. Also, keto. It's going to be a keto cake. See, you lost me at keto. <laughs> it's going to be a low-carb cake. <laughs> a low-carb 15 million download cake. <laughs> if you had told me you're making the cake out of kale, it would have been the same thing for me. <laughs> you just completely lost me. <laughs> no, thanks. Pass. What's the point of eating cake if it's low carb? Because it's high fat. It's still high fat. I, I want all the fun, but let's take a lot of the fun out. <laughs> if we could do, if I could have fun, but not that much fun, that would be, that'd be great. You still get to eat all the fat and fat is delicious. Fat is delicious. I agree. <laughs> so I'll be on Instagram making a cake and Joe, you'll, you'll actually be doing um, heady and important things like interviewing the New York Times money guy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Talking to him about expected family contribution. I think I'd rather be eating cake. Ron's a great guy, but I'd like to eat cake. All right. Well, one of these days, you, me and Ron will all get together and have some cake. That's a deal. Sold. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Joe, for being part of this once again. And thank you to the community for being part of the Afford Anything community. Great questions. That is our show for today. Do you want to start 2021 strong? Uh, duh, of course you do. Join our free 31-day challenge. It is, as the name implies, 31 days of inspiration that can help you start 2021 on the right foot. Every day, we send you a daily email update with one idea, one question, and one specific action that you can take. Each update is related to motivation, habits, productivity, money, investing. Almost every update is based in research, based on books that have been written, based on some of the curated best ideas out there in terms of how you can build better habits, how you can be more productive, how you can be more energized, how you can manage your money better, how you can think about your investments better how you can get yourself geared towards an amazing 2021 because the year's just beginning. Let's make it a good one. So sign up for our 31-day challenge. It's totally free and you can sign up at affordanything.com slash 31-day challenge. That's affordanything.com slash 31-day challenge. Thank you again for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a friend or a family member and make sure that you hit subscribe or follow in whatever app you're using to listen to this show so that you don't miss any of our awesome upcoming episodes. Next week, we have Aaron Lowry, the broke millennial, talking about how to have awkward money conversations with your family, your friends, your coworkers. How do you discuss things that are indelicate topics, such as 
how much money you make, whether or not you're willing to give a friend or family member a loan. How do you have those kinds of financial conversations? How do you navigate money when it comes to all types of relationships, not just romantic relationships, but relationships with all of the people across the spectrum of your life? We're going to discuss that in next week's episode. Make sure that you hit subscribe or follow so that you don't miss that interview or any of our amazing other upcoming guests. Thanks again for tuning in. My name's Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything Podcast, and I will catch you in the next episode.